Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, and chapter 7, verses 51 to 60. Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's good to see a pretty full sanctuary. Uh, Glad you can join us today. I'd like to welcome a few newcomers in our midst. Uh, let me first introduce to you Eunice Kim, who is a good friend of Stevens. Can you raise your hand, Eunice, for us? All right. And uh, yes, yes, let's do that. Warm welcome to you. We also have uh, a couple uh, newly engaged. Camilo and Hannah are joining us today. We're uh, sitting over there on that side. Let's also welcome them. And uh, I have a Josh Kim uh, who's with Debbie today. Josh, where are you? Sitting in the middle over there. Let's also give them a warm welcome. Wow, so much, who is that? So much energy today. Okay, thank you, whoever you are. Uh, We're back in the book of Acts today, so we're resuming. I I, I do... um, I do need to be at the General Assembly this, this week, uh, Monday through Friday, and so Pastor David will be giving the message next Sunday, but then after that I'll, I'll be 
preaching consecutively for at least a month and uh, plowing through the book of Acts. Uh, so here we are today in chapter 6 and part of 7. Uh, Pastor Xiong did not read the, the long sermon that Stephen gave because it was, it's way too long to include in the reading today. And also, I, I cannot cover all parts of it, but I, I will do my best to summarize it. Okay, so that's, we're meant to look at that entire portion today, okay? Um, so our, our eyes are focused on Stephen, uh, the accusations hurled at him, and also uh, his response to the accusations, and, and then his death. He, he ends up dying, and uh, there's some lessons to be learned here uh, for us today. You know, uh, let me begin by saying, you know, we're we're living in an extremely divided world, as as you all know. Uh, not only is the secular world divided. But the church is divided as well, including our own denomination, which is why, one reason why I'm going to go to General Assembly, because there's a lot of important topics that they'll be discussing and voting on. Uh, but I believe it's especially during these times that we need to be clear about the things in life that are truly worth living and dying for. And so my hope is that as we continue our series in the book of Acts, uh, where we see the, the church striving, right, to remain faithful in the face of great opposition. Uh, my hope is that this, this sermon series and, and this sermon in particular today would help to serve, uh, serve to clarify what we all truly believe and what we ought to uh, be willing to, to live and die for as believers. Uh, the outline will be in three parts. Uh, part one, the accusers, uh, looking at the world's hatred toward the godly. Part two, the, the message, uh, and we'll see how the gospel, uh, how it cuts to the heart, but also enrages mobs. Part three, the blood, uh, and we'll look at Stephen's faith in the face of death. Okay, part one, uh, the accusers. In the beginning of chapter six, let me remind you, there were seven godly men chosen to serve as the first deacons of this young church. But out of these seven godly men, the author of this book, uh, the Dr. Luke, he chose to further highlight Stephen by describing him to be a man full of faith and full of the Spirit. Right? And it's interesting to see that Luke, he does not attach any special personalized character descriptions for the other six men, right? even though they too were chosen because of their godliness. Right? So it must have been the case that this man, Stephen, he clearly stood out from the rest of them in regards to his character, his faith, and probably even his giftedness. Right? But the thing is this, if, if you're living in a world that is particularly hostile toward Christ, being especially faithful and gifted in the Lord means that you will also draw the most attention, not only from your friends, but also from your enemies. And as a result, you will undoubtedly experience the most hardship in life. And that's what we basically read about in chapter 6 and 7. 
One reason the book of Acts was written, I believe, is so that we could learn what it looks like to live as Christians in a hostile world. And because of that, I believe it's important to know that Stephen here, he wasn't singled out because he committed a crime. He didn't do anything wrong. Stephen was a very godly man. He was not guilty at all of any of the crimes he was charged with. He was persecuted and even murdered as an innocent person. And because of this, uh, people have observed and they've written on how Stephen's suffering and death closely resembles what Jesus experienced on the way to the cross. And I think it's true. You know, one commentator writes, Jesus is being essentially tried again in the person of Stephen. And we're being shown here how Stephen is united to Christ in his sufferings. It's giving us a picture of what the Christian life ought to look like. Believers united to their Lord and Savior. And as I, as I read that uh, portion, I was reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He wrote, he wrote that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Think about what he writes there. That's what he desires. He desires to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And that's what he actually does. He, he, his life was, was a life filled with suffering. And he, he died a gruesome death, just as his Lord did. I wonder how many of us truly desire to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, and being conformed to his death. Right? This stuff, like, to desire this stuff is humanly impossible, I know. But if you're full of faith, and if you are full of the Holy Spirit, and guess what? Being persecuted for Christ, even dying for Christ, it becomes a privilege, an honor, doesn't it? Just like how noble men counted a great privilege to heed the call of their commander-in-chief and die for their own country, Christians who are full of faith and of the Spirit are to count it a privilege, honor, to die for their Lord and Savior. That's what's in view here. Now let me share a few things about Stephen's accusers. And, and I believe this is helpful because the tactics that they used are not different from the tactics we see being used in our day against faithful Christians. You know, I personally believe that God has made these things clear for all of us to see, not so that we could somehow outmaneuver or outsmart our accusers, but so that we wouldn't be caught off guard, that we wouldn't be surprised when we see these same tactics being used against us and against the church, and so that we could respond like Stephen when we are called to suffer unjustly. What do you see here? Do, do you see panic? I don't see any panic. Right? I don't see any desperate attempt to avoid death. Rather, we see Stephen boldly speaking the truth 
while expressing love for his enemies by asking God to show them mercy and to not hold their sins against them, just as Jesus prayed for his enemies. Right? That, that's a godly example we ought to emulate. Not panicking, not being desperate, not feeling so desperate before threats or death. But what tactics are being used by Stephen's accusers exactly? First of all, it says in verse 10, let's understand the context here better. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Right? So they, they couldn't handle this guy's wisdom. He was just way too, too wise for them. He spoke with authority as well, right? They couldn't, they couldn't take them in a real discussion or debate, basically. That's what it's saying. So tell me, if you can't have an honest argument or debate with someone because they're just wiser than you, or their arguments are just flat out better than yours, then what tactics do we tend to resort to? I'm sure you can all relate. I mean, have you ever done this when you were a kid? Like You don't have a good response, right? You don't have a good comeback line. Right? So you're like, you know what? Well, you're... you're Ugly, that's what you are, right? You're fat, right? That's a, that's a form of an ad hominem attack. That's child play. You don't deal with the substance of the argument. You resort to name calling. You start attacking the person's character or their lack of social status. Unfortunately, it happens quite often, even in the adult world, and, and so it makes respectful public discourse virtually impossible. You know, in my interactions with people over some of the more controversial social issues of our day, I've heard people say things like, you know, why would you listen to someone who is like a fundamentalist Baptist? You know, why, why listen to a fundamentalist Baptist? I'm thinking, what has that got to do with the argument? What has that got to do with the substance that we're discussing right now? Right? Don't you realize you're using an ad hominem attack, right? Shouldn't you know better, pastor? Why would you listen to someone who holds some strange, private, charismatic belief? Again, what, what has that got to do with the content we're debating right now? Right? It's another form of an ad hominem attack. Why would you listen to that guy? You know, he's a white man. He's the oppressor. He's the problem. <laughs> this, is, this is how, the, this is how the, the reasoning goes these days. In the case of Stephen's accusers, they could not deal with the substance of his arguments, and so they resorted to attacking his character, impugning his motives, and creating false narratives. Basically, lie after lie after lie. This included bribing people, to take a stand as false witnesses against Stephen. That is the political machine Stephen was up against, and he knew that. Right? Accusations being hurled at him that were false. You know, because he taught, as Jesus did, that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law just means law of Moses, okay? He was being accused now as, of blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God. That's how they would accuse him. And because he taught that Jesus was the 
fulfillment of the holy temple of God, he was then accused of disrespecting the sanctity of God's temple. False accusations. In our day, it kind of plays out like this. If you are for protecting the child in the womb, you are accused of what? Hating women. If you are for preserving marriage to be between a man and a woman, what are you accused of? You're accused of hating gays. You're accused of hating immigrants and the poor if you hold a certain beliefs or public policy. That's how it works these days. My point here is that Stephen knew what the attacks were about. That He knew that the decks were stacked against him, and that his opponents were conducting a very aggressive and dishonest smear campaign, essentially. And it's, it's worth looking at how Stephen responds to this so that we can learn from his example of faith. But that, that's the accusation part. Right? That's what the tactics were. Part two, the message. See how Stephen responds. And the first thing I just want to make clear is that Stephen, he, he does not, again, as we've seen with the Apostle Peter in the previous chapters, he does not mince words. He does not speak like a politician. Rather, he speaks like a prophet. How do politicians tend to speak? They tend to equivocate. They tend to qualify every single sentence they utter so as to try not to offend anyone they're speaking to. And after they're done speaking, no one really knows what they stand for. Okay? Or if you're, if you're a really skilled politician, you're able to make everyone think that you believe exactly what they believe that you're on their side. So everyone is kept happy. At the very least, no one is terribly offended by your words. And if, if no one is terribly offended by your words as a politician, you've done a, a decent job. Right? But Stephen does not speak like that at all because in the end, all of his opponents know exactly what he means and they're deeply offended and they're ready to kill him. Now, I don't have the time, like I said, to go over Stephen's entire message because it's way too long, but I will give you the gist of it, okay? But this is what you need to understand first. Stephen's accusers, they basically believe that the most important aspect of the Jewish religion were the external things that held their religion together. And the most important piece of that was the temple of God, the holy temple of God. That was the great external. Because for the Jews, the temple was the only place in the world where God was especially present with his people. And to utter the words of the temple being destroyed was considered incredibly sacrilegious. Even if, you know, Stephen just meant that the destruction of the temple was Jesus' body being destroyed for our sake. And so, through his message, Stephen is basically challenging 
this kind of view of God and this view of the temple. And he does so by retelling their Jewish history, starting from Abraham, going to then Joseph, then to Moses, then to David, and then to Solomon, right, who was responsible for building the actual physical temple of God. But the main point of Stephen's message is this, my Jewish brothers, God is not limited to any one place, not even his holy temple. God was, he argues, starting from Abraham, he was with Abraham, don't you realize? Even when Abraham was a sojourner going from one place to another to another, this Abraham didn't even own one square inch of land, and yet God was with him. And God was also with Joseph and with Moses when they were both in a foreign land called Egypt, a place that a Jewish person would least expect to find God. And when a great temple was finally constructed by King Solomon, don't you know, my Jewish brothers, even Solomon acknowledged in his prayer that God could not truly dwell in a building made by human hands. This is part of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, O God. How much less this temple I have built. This is from Solomon's lips, the, the one who build, the, built the physical temple of God. And that's why Stephen caps off his sermon by quoting from the prophet Isaiah with, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you, O little man, build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? And once Stephen uttered these words, his opponents were deeply offended because they knew exactly what all of these claims meant. They knew exactly what these Jesus followers were saying. They were saying that the earthly temple was meant to be a pointer to the spiritual house that Jesus had built with him as a chief cornerstone. And he was also accusing them of killing the rock, this Jesus, rejecting him, killing him by crucifying him on the cross. That's why they were so irate. Right? They, they wanted to... They, they wanted to charge Stephen of blasphemy, right? And they wanted Stephen to admit that he was guilty of this sin and of hating God. But instead, through his message, Stephen turned the tables on them and basically said, you know what? The real God-haters here are the ones who murdered Jesus. And you know what? You believe that salvation can be accomplished by the works of your own hands. But man cannot create a resting place for God. It is God who has to create a resting place for man. That was Stephen's version of the gospel being, being proclaimed to his opponents. That was his basic message. Who are you to think that you can create a resting place for God? You kill this Jesus who came 
to be a resting place for you. Who is the God-hater? And notice how his accusers respond to this. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I only, I only grind my teeth when I'm sleeping. Right? I, don't, I don't know exactly what this looks like in real life. They were so angry, so, so mad. Actually, I, I remember one time I was really angry. I didn't grind my teeth. I was, uh, my, my body was shaking, though. My body was like, shaking in anger. But the point here is they were, they were ready to kill. Their hearts were filled with hate, rage. It's interesting, though. There, there are two very different kinds of responses to the gospel we see in, in these first few chapters of the book of Acts. Let me take you back to Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is after Peter gives his message. Okay? Peter gives a sermon centered upon Christ, revealing who Christ is. And uh, in response to that message, we read that the people were cut to the heart. <laughs> That's how the ESV puts it and, and most translations. They were cut to the heart. And the Greek word that's used there is katenugeson. They were katenugeson. They were cut to the heart. And, and in context, that, that's, that's a beautiful, appropriate response. That, that, that's the kind of response that we should be praying to see in people who hear the gospel. Right, you want people to be katenugeson, cut to the heart, because what follows immediately is, is they, they are humbled, and, and they, they cry out for forgiveness. They, they repent of their sins, and they want to be reconciled to God through Christ. That's what katenugeson leads to. Now, unfortunately, in some translations, um, I think the NIV has, has it as, even in our passage today, Acts chapter 7, verse 54, uh, it says, cut to the heart. But this is confusing because I think, I think the ES translators, the ES, ESV translators, rather, were wise not to use the same expression. Right? Because in our, in our passage today, uh, as we read, they were enraged, right, and wanted to kill them. And, and the Greek word there that's used is die prionto. It's die prionto. And die prionto leads to not humility and repentance, but rather pride, rage, and murder. That's what die prionto is about. And so there is a difference. There are two very different responses to the same same gospel message. They're not two different messages. Same message of Christ being the Savior and Lord that we're to bow to, but one is katenugeson, humility and repentance of sin, wanting to be reconciled, and the other is die prionto, I want to kill this God and kill his messengers, that attitude. You know, most of you are here because when you hear the gospel proclaimed, you don't respond in rage or with a desire to kill the messenger. Okay? If that were true, I think I'd already be dead, right? So thank you for not trying to kill me. Rather, you're here because your posture is that of humility, and it might not be perfect all the time, but you, you desire to repent 
of your sin. You, you want to seek forgiveness and you want to be made right with God. Uh, you, you want your relationship with God to be healthy and whole, right? right? That's God's blessing upon us as his people. That doesn't come naturally. That's a supernatural work of God and we should thank God for that heart that he's, he's given us. But before we move on to the third and final part of the message, I do think it's worth remembering that whenever we share the gospel with others, it ought to compel them to respond to it and not be wishy-washy in their response. Right? They may ask for some time to think about it, but if you've done your job right, in clearly articulating what the gospel is, they cannot remain neutral for too long because the gospel just does not allow it. You, you should say something like this. I'm not, it doesn't have to be identical, but look, brother, sister, you are, you are not, and I'm not, I'm not trying to like make you angry here. Just understand, I, this, is, this is what God wants you to know. You are not right with him. And the only way that you can be made right with him is if you ask him to forgive. You need to be forgiven through Jesus and need to know what he has done for you on the cross. How can you remain neutral? You have to choose what you're going to do with Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He is worthy of your life. You, you're, you're called to surrender your life to him. Right? How can you remain neutral if that's the message? You're either going to have to humble yourself and be reconciled to this God because without doing so, you're an enemy. You remain an enemy of God, can't you see? Okay? Or you will have to choose to kill this God in your heart and to ignore him and to pretend that he does not exist Part three, the blood. So we, we know that the crowd was enraged after hearing Stephen's message, but there's one specific statement that further triggers the mob, which leads to mob violence with the stoning of Stephen and his death. And it's, it's not as if Stephen was just recklessly running his mouth. It says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, which means what he said was good, and it honored the Lord and God was orchestrating these events. He was supposed to serve as this kind of godly example of standing up for Christ in the midst of his suffering. This is what happened. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, so this is what comes out of Stephen's mouth. This is what was, was heard audibly. Okay? The crowd heard him say these words. Behold, this means he, he wasn't whispering. Okay? This means as Christians, guys, you got to develop a louder voice so people will hear what you're saying. Like, what did he say? He's like, what did, what did he say? No, everyone knew what he said. Be, develop a voice. Okay? Be heard when called upon. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man 
standing at the right hand of God. And as soon as they hear these words, it says, they cried out with a loud voice. So imagine, I don't know how, ah, or ah, ah, rage. Ah, I can't, I can't believe he just said that. And then they stopped their ears. They, ah, right? It was like madness. It's like they're demon possessed or something. You know, it's like crazy. And then they rushed together to get him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. It says this is an illegal act. They weren't allowed to do this. They weren't allowed to do this. That's why Jesus had to go through the Roman court system, right? They just, this is mob violence. It's illegal activity here. It's unjust killing. But here's an important question we should ask. Why would anyone feel so triggered by these words? You know, think about that. Well, I had to do some reading on this too. I wasn't quite sure but there is something unique about this vision that uh, is, can be easily overlooked, okay? <laughs> um, the thing is, when Jesus is mentioned, right, in relation to his throne in heaven, in, in virtually all the scripture texts, um, he is said to be seated or standing. He is said to be seated at the right hand of God. That's why even in the Apostles' Creed that we recite once a month, he is seated, not standing. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That, that's how we know. Right? That's how we understand Jesus. He is seated on his throne. Um, Hebrews is helpful. Hebrews, it highlights for us why, why there is such significance attached to his being, him being seated on his throne, okay? Hebrews chapter 8, <clears throat> 1, and then I'll read another Hebrews text. Uh, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of God, or right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Um, and then Hebrews chapter 10, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And that, that verse is very helpful because uh, if you missed it, there, there's basically a contrast made between Jesus as our great high priest who completed his work once and for all versus all the other you know, Jewish high priests who had to always stand. There were no chairs in the temple for a reason. Right? Because the, the symbolism was the until, G, until the, the true Messiah came to fulfill the work of God once and for all, these other Jewish priests, they had to keep standing and working and working and offering sacrifice after sacrifice. Right? There was, they, they were not allowed to sit because their work was never complete. Right? So the, the difference is that when Jesus came and offered himself up as the ultimate sacrifice, he was able to say, it is finished Right? My priestly work is done, so I, I'm going to sit down now. That, that is the theological significance of Jesus sitting on his throne. So then people have wondered, why, why then would Jesus be standing in this vision? That's kind of weird. Is he not done yet? 
Why are they standing up again? You know, what, what significance does this have? And it's, it seems like there could be two possibilities. Some people have suggested that Jesus stood up to simply receive Stephen into heaven. It's like Jesus saying, well done, Stephen. Good job. You are truly my good and faithful servant. Now I will receive you into my arms. Would you come and share uh, my joy? And some of you may know people like that who, who died on their deathbeds. Or they see a vision of Jesus, perhaps, standing with his arms wide open, reaching down to them, and then they die, just like Stephen, where he says, Lord, receive my spirit. So that's a possibility. Another possibility, though, that I actually like more is that Jesus stood up from his throne to serve as an advocate, like a legal advocate or a defender for Stephen. Right? Have you had any experiences where you were beaten down, you know, either literally or figuratively, and someone with some earthly power and authority stood up for you to rescue you from your trouble. Have you had that kind of experience before? Right? Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're in kind of a fist fight and, and you're, you're like laying down and, and someone over there stands up for you and comes and rescues you, right? Something like that is happening here. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, Jesus says, I will also acknowledge him. I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. So Stephen was standing up for Christ, right? In the midst of his suffering. And he sees Jesus standing up for him. Romans 8, 34 says, who is, to, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And it's interesting, there's no mention of whether he's seated or standing here, but it does say he's interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us from his throne. So based on these verses, it could be said that Jesus was standing up from his throne, right, to serve as an advocate and defender for Stephen. Stephen here, who was being condemned by this corrupt, earthly kangaroo court, essentially. But thankfully, he was given the grace to see what was actually taking place in the court that truly matters, which is the heavenly court of God. where Jesus comes out of his seat and stood up for him to give Stephen courage so that he may die well for his Savior, for his Lord. And it's no wonder Stephen's enemies were so triggered by, by rage. Right? They, they knew that Stephen was claiming God to be on his side. And they knew that essentially the vision was saying that it was not Stephen who was an enemy of God, they were the enemies of God. They were directly opposing God. God was for Stephen. 
And it's also no wonder Stephen was able to endure such an unjust treatment that led to his brutal death. Imagine having the stone crush your skull. He just stood there. Because as his eyes were fixed upon heaven, where he saw his creator stand up from his throne for none other than him. How encouraging it must have been. He would have thought, my God, my God is standing up for me. Right? Who am I that he would care so much for me? But this is not only Stephen's God. This is my God. This is your God. So, brothers, sisters, I think there's a way we can apply this to our own lives. You know, when, when you feel overwhelmed by life, when, when you grow weary, when the various trials and hardships are crushing your own souls, and when you're tempted to fall into despair, right, wouldn't it be helpful to think about Jesus who is enthroned above, right? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? He is the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, and wouldn't it be encouraging for you to envision this God, this Savior, who stands up for you, right, to be your comforter and defender in times of trouble? And if you knew with such certainty that God has your back in this way, wouldn't it give you the courage and strength to endure any kind of hardship in your lives? We find encouragement when people whom we trust and respect stand up for us, don't we? Then how much more ought we to be encouraged when the King of Kings himself, the Lord of Lords, stand up for us? Let me close the message with just one final thought. Uh, when we hear about Christians suffering and even dying because of their faith, and it happens a lot in our world, by the way. Uh, Christians by far are the most persecuted group worldwide. Right? It's just that um, most media outlets don't like to cover that kind of news because it would contradict their narrative that Christians are somehow the most privileged group in the world. But when you hear of Christians giving their lives for the sake of Christ, let's remind ourselves and let's make sure our own children understand that those lives are not wasted. They are not wasted lives, brothers and sisters. There's a famous saying that goes like this, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. And it's based on Passages like John 12, 24 that says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit, but it must die first. You can't bear fruit unless you die. This is a spiritual law that is not broken, God guarantees it. 
If you fall and die because of your faith, your life will never be a waste. It's not wasted. But you will bear much fruit is a promise. And this was true of Stephen's death. Right? Based on God's sovereign plan, Stephen's death led to the rise of the apostle Paul. You know, Paul is, is, one, is the one here, as you see, he's the one presiding over this unjust killing. Right? He approves of it. But in God's providence, he's not going to remain the same person for that much longer. God's going to change him in a radical way just in a few chapters. Right? In other words, God does not allow Stephen's life to be wasted. Stephen is the grain of wheat that falls and dies, and then Paul is the one, he is one of the fruit that bears out of Stephen's death. And the cycle repeats itself through history. When after, after Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles fall and die themselves, their deaths lead to the greater flourishing of the early church. That's one way to understand the history of the world, not just the history of the church. Now, look, I I confess that I I do not perfectly live out this principle each day because of my own human weakness, but I I believe this truth with all my heart. I do, And, and that's why at this point in my life, honestly, and I've said this to you before, death Death is not something that scares me all that much. It does not. Joyce doesn't like it when I say things like this. But I am now even more fully convinced that my kids, they need to see their dad living without a fear of death. And they need to see me make decisions not only for myself, but for the family that reflect my beliefs about what death truly is. It is not the end. It is only the beginning of a life that all of us ought to want. It doesn't matter how old they are. It's most important that they see me live faithfully before God. And it's okay if I die at a relatively young age. That's better than having them see me live a long, cowardly life until age 90. So husbands and fathers, let me ask you this. Are your wives and kids convinced that you are willing to die for Christ, for your faith? Or do they view you as someone who rarely takes any risks in life? Like if I asked your wife the question, or if I asked your, I don't know, 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 12-year-old the question, hey, does your dad like to take risks? Is your dad a courageous man? What do you think they would say? Brothers, men of this very safe and comfortable Northern Virginia. You can take this as a challenge. If, if you live such a risk-averse life, which most of us do, that's why we moved here. If, but if you, if you live such a risk-averse life, you're basically saying that you're not willing to give your life to the Lord. 
And what kind of life would that be in the end? What kind of fruit do you think that will produce in the long run? And so may the Lord give all of us the faith and courage we need, not only to live well, but also to die well for the sake of the coming generations and for the sake of Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we're thankful for the example of Stephen because uh, the example gives us a, a concrete picture of what it looks like to respond to false accusations